Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church and uh, this, I think, on a holiday weekend and uh, special greetings to those joining us at uh, Crossroads Highland Park and the 01. So uh, there's a picture that's going to go up here of the Jordan River. And um, this is a prominent river that features in so- several biblical events. I have been to the Jordan River In fact, when I say I've been to the Jordan River, I have seen it up close and personal several years ago. We, Christ Church, had a tour of Israel, and we did a baptism in the Jordan River. So when I say, uh, can we pull up that picture? When I say I have been to the Jordan River, I got wet in the Jordan River. And by the way, we have a baptism coming up in two weeks. So those of you who have not been baptized, it's not the Jordan River, but you ought to sign up to be baptized. Uh, and when you get into the Jordan River, you realize some things. Yeah, so, so this is a picture that, that, uh, that indicates the Jordan River isn't quite as peaceful as you might think. When you get there, you, you, you realize two very important things that might not otherwise be obvious. First of all, although the Jordan River is not a very big river, it's not very wide, it's not very long, it's really steep. So it starts 9,000 feet above sea level. And over the course of just a couple hundred miles, it drops to, uh, it drops 10,300 feet to 1,300 feet below sea level, the lowest point on the planet not covered by water. So it's not long, it's not wide, it's steep. Consequently, it has a pretty wicked current. Consequently, it has washed away the bank. You do not wade into the Jordan River. I've been there, I have looked over the edge, and it is, it is, it is, you're clueless as to whether or not I'm about to step into a foot of water or 20 feet of water. Right? And what that means is you have to, you have to go all in. Right, You can't wade out into the Jordan River, which is part of the reason why it becomes a barrier in various people's lives, especially to the Jews. So there's a very important event that happens in Joshua chapter 3, which is 40 years after the Jews have been led out of Egypt by Moses. And, uh, and they, of course, cross the Red Sea. There's a significant moment there. They're supposed to go into the promised land, but they listen to those who say that God cannot give them the land. He's already done all these miracles, but they listen to the majority report. Joshua and Caleb said, no, God has given us this land. We can go into it, but they choose not to. So God says, okay, well, then you're going to wander around in the desert for the next 40 years. And during those 40 years, everybody that's part of the, of the nation of Israel, except Joshua and Caleb, die. So 40 years later, Moses has now died. Joshua's in charge. They come to the banks of the Jordan River to cross. But it's, it's, a, it's a significant barrier, in part because they don't know how to swim. Everybody there has spent their entire life in the desert. And if you're in the desert, you can't sign up for swim lessons. So there's this river, and it's got a pretty significant current. 
And, and so for three days, the people stand on the banks of the river. They're supposed to cross this river. It's not that wide. But for three days, they do nothing. And then God says to them, okay, uh, Joshua, have all the people line up behind the priests. Have the priests go first. Have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, which is this box. If you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you might know what it looks like. There's a box. And in the box was the Ten Commandments that God had given them, uh, a vial of manna, the bread that fell out of heaven, and Aaron's rod, which has been broken off. It's a stick, but it continues to bloom. And all of that is in the Ark of the Covenant. And God says to them, okay, everybody line up. And on the count of three, the priests are going to step into the Jordan River. And when their feet hit the water, <laughs> okay, but not until, I will, I will cause the waters to part. And so, uh, again, you can't wade into the Jordan River. You're committing. So the priests are standing on the bank. They're looking at this, at this river. It's at flood stage at that point. Uh, it, the water is, is, is coursing rapidly and they have to commit. So, Long before Crossing Jordan was a dramatic TV show, Crossing the Jordan stood for a dramatic step of faith. And so I bring this up because, as you have heard, we are launching this dramatic step of faith. We are, we are calling on you to lean in, to step up, to, to, to love, to obey, to trust, to, to cross the Jordan. Right, that's sort of a, a metaphor for what is happening, and um, and this is a big deal. And so we're going to spend the next five weeks. We're going to be in the book of Genesis, chapters eleven through twenty-two, looking at uh, principally the life of Abraham. And the question you might ask is, why? First of all, why are we doing any of this? Like, why reach? Why take this? Why the hassle? Why the sacrifice? Why the effort? Why the risk? Uh, and it's a very fair question. So uh, the answer to why reach is, first of all, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people who are hurting uh, out there. So in some ways, for some people, things have never been better. Uh, the market is at really high levels. I realize there was a correction, but <laughs> the market is currently higher than it was on January 1st. Uh, I mean, the market is at high levels. And step back from that, there has been a 50-year run of medical advances that has improved the quality of our lives, life expectancy. There's, in many ways, for many people, things are going very well. But there is a growing gap between the haves and the have-nots, and there are many people who are suffering. And set aside physical needs, there's a whole lot of spiritual confusion uh, going on out there. There are many people who sincerely believe that whatever they sincerely believe is right. I mean, that, that's, that's the modern experiment. Right? Whatever we sincerely believe that's all that matters. But that's, that's sort of crazy thinking. And, and there, people don't realize that God has, in fact, revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself to us uh, in his book, but he has principally revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. And there is a way forward, and there is a way to be reconciled to God. 
And so there are huge needs to see people hear about God's love, and there's huge needs to be the hands and feet of God and care for people. And principally, God's fix for this has been the church. Uh, so that has been the plan. It's a 2,000-year-old plan. Uh, we want to, and we want to fuel a movement that reaches people and renews communities, and that means we're trying to multiply churches. That, that's the effort. Locally, we want to start three new campuses over the next few years. We also want to um, expand our efforts to work among the poor, and we want to help other churches go and thrive. Locally, we want to partner with our global partners to start churches that will reach people and renew communities. So this is very much a church-centric, let's multiply multiplying churches. And we're doing this because that's God's plan, but we're also doing this because that's what we get called to. Those of us who sign up to be Christ followers, we are signing up to be those who love and serve, who sacrifice those who are generous, those who are good neighbors, those who are good stewards, those who love their enemy. I mean, that, that's, that's the call that gets placed on us. It develops throughout the Bible, and it comes into clear focus when we get into the New Testament and the, the, the commissions and the mandates that, that Jesus gives to us. Additionally, uh, we are doing this because we have um, historically been, and all I think always been, a, a resource rich church. I'm thinking about Crossroads. I'm thinking about Highland Park. I'm thinking about Lake Forest. I'm not necessarily thinking about money. I'm just thinking about people and ability. There's a lot of know-how and can-do in our congregations. I have shared before, when I lose sleep about this church, it's because there's so much um, talent sitting on the bench. How do we get the talent in the game? That's the challenge because we are a, a resource-rich church. And I believe, by the way, the other reason we're doing this is because, uh, not just because we can, I believe that in the end, in light of eternity, we will all want to be fully deployed with the gifts and abilities and resources God has given us, to use those in ways that, that honor him and reflect him and serve him. So, uh, so that's why we're doing this. Why Abraham? Like, why look there for counsel? Well, there are a few reasons. First of all, um, as has already been mentioned, he's a significant person. Uh, he, you know, he launched the three great monotheistic faiths. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all looked at Abraham as a, as a founding father of sorts. So uh, Abraham's a significant person. It's not unfair to say between Genesis 12, so about page 15 in the Bible, from page 15 in the Bible all the way through the Old Testament, it's essentially the story of Abraham. It's Abraham and his descendants. And so he's a significant person. Uh, secondly, he's a fascinating person. He, he starts, you know, he lives 4,000 years ago, and he starts as this shepherd wandering around in the Fertile Crescent, and uh, he responds to God's call. And in the process of responding to God's call, uh, he lives a fascinating life, and he becomes someone who changes the world in significant ways. He stands with God against culture, against his family in some senses. He stands against God and sees significant things happen. So he's significant, he's fascinating. He's also somebody that I'm drawn to because he's pretty significantly flawed. Um, Watching Abraham, reading Abraham, leads me 
to think, okay, well, I, maybe, maybe I could do this. I suspect, uh, like Sherry and I, many of you are watching the Olympics this week. To me, I, I think the Olympic sports divide into two categories. There's those that I watch and I think, I could never do that. And then there's those that I watch, principally curling, where I think, I could do that. Like, I might have missed my Olympic possibilities because I could do that. Now, before I get lots of emails from all of you who are into curling and are thinking, Woodruff, you could not do that, I'm sure there's more to it than I understand. But uh, Abraham is, in one sense, sort of um, the Old Testament version of curling. You, you read Abraham and you think, well, I think I could do some of that. Uh, he has some real bad moves. Like in Genesis 20, there's this event where he and, uh, he and his wife, Sarah, are traveling and this group of men approach. And Abraham turns to Sarah and he says, um, look, you're pretty attractive and they're going to want you and if they find out that we're married, they're going to kill me to get you. So here's my plan. I'm going to tell them that we're brother and sister. So they'll leave me alone. They'll take you, but they'll leave me alone. So um, good luck. That's his plan. Uh, it was Valentine's Day this past week. I'm sure you all know that. Uh, on behalf of men everywhere, I think, thanks, Abraham, you've set a really low bar. I mean, it's just, Valentine's Day can be a little high stress, like, I hope I don't do anything particularly stupid this week, but you always think, at least I won't be as much of a klutz as Abraham. By the way, also, there was the, the time where he thought, you know what would solve our family problems? If I slept with my wife's younger maid. That would solve our problems. Yeah, okay. So Abraham does some pretty significantly stupid things. So I'm encouraged. If you read the Bible, you know the Bible is full of very flawed people. Peter and David and Paul. I mean, everybody with the exception of Jesus, basically, uh, is presented in sort of raw form. And you see the kinds of mistakes they make And yet God uses very broken people. So we're looking at Abraham because he's flawed. We're also looking at Abraham because he does step up. And he does show the way. And he does model faith in a significant way. uh, Some challenging ways. And he does make it into the book of, uh, of Hebrews, into the hall of faith chapter, Hebrews 11, and is celebrated for that. So... Uh, for those reasons and, and others, we're going to be in Genesis chapter um, 11, chapters 11 through 22 for this series. And so if you have uh, a Bible and you want to follow along, turn to Genesis chapter 11. And while you're doing that, I'll note that uh, most people, when they're studying Abraham, start in Genesis 12. But uh, it helps to start in 11. So chapter 11 starts at the Tower of Babel, and you got some genealogy stuff. I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. Genesis 11, verse 26. When Terah, this is Abraham's father, when Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
Now, just a little footnote here. Don't be confused. In the first half of Genesis, Abraham is referred to as Abram, and Sarah is referred to as Sarah. In Genesis 17, after Isaac is born, God changes their names. But uh, So Abram will become Abraham. Uh, now, verse 27. Now, these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, um, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So if we spent a lot of time here, it would be a little bit easier to unpack this. But basically, what you get uh, at the end of, of Genesis 11 is an understanding that the lights are going out. Human life is coming to a crash. So Genesis 1 and 2, everything is going well. Genesis 3, sin enters the world, death, all kinds of evil, destruction, problems. Genesis 4 through 11 gives you a reset and you see as you read through Genesis 4 through 11 that no matter how many times they try to reset and get things right, things are spiraling down. Evil is multiplying, darkness is prevailing, bad people are winning. There's, there's one semi-decent family. It's the descendants of Seth. And, and there's one family that seems to hold out some hope that seems to continue to look to God, but everyone else is going in different directions. And that one family leads up to Abraham, and now we hear that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. And it's not just that. Terah, the name of Abraham's father, Terah in Hebrew, there's a, there's a couple little things that you would get if you were uh, reading this in Hebrew, you were fluent in Hebrew. First of all, the name is a play on the word moon. And they are from, the uh, Ur of the, uh, the Chaldeans is where they were from. And that was an area that we know the worship of the moon was prominent. And so what the indication here is that Abraham's father is, is a pagan. He's worshiping the moon. Not just that, but the word Terah also is sort of a, a metaphor. There's a play there. The name means the end. Sort of like uh, our English word caboose. And so, so you're seeing with Terah comes the end. He's a pagan. The end. He's got a, a son, Abraham. Abraham is, is not going to be able to have uh, kids, and so it looks like the lights are going out. Darkness is going to prevail. That's the theme that you get from the end of Genesis 11. But then we read on, Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse. And by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. So, suddenly, it's dark, the lights are going out, everything seems to be going wrong. Now, all of a sudden, God uh, reinserts himself. 
and he calls on Abraham, and there is a, there is a path forward. And um, I, I want to be sure you see that the call of Abraham changes everything. Abraham is a good guy from a good family, but that isn't enough. Things are coming to an end until the call of God happens. Please understand, Abraham is not called because he's good. Right? Abraham is not called because he's qualified. He becomes qualified because of the call. The call of God is what changes Abraham. And in fact, the call of God changes everything. We need to understand and appreciate the power of the call of God. Sherry and I have three boys, um, and we raised them um, mostly here at, at, at this church. We were out on the West Coast for uh, the first years of their lives, but we raised them mostly here. We raised them in the church. We did our best as parents to raise them to be good guys. Uh, we, we, we prayed for them. We prayed with them. We brought them to church. We did everything we could for them. We tried to teach them right and wrong, and and they're good guys. We're very, we're very proud of them. We didn't do everything right. And uh, you could ask them if you've got, I don't know, six, seven, eight hours of the things that we did wrong. I'm sure they'll be glad to fill you in. We didn't do everything right, but they're good guys. We're proud of them. They're making good choices. And, and they're hardworking and they're thoughtful. Um, we're, we feel very fortunate. But here's the deal. They would be good pagans without the call of God. They'd be well-read, they'd be interesting, they'd be hard-working, they'd show up. But it's the call of God that principally has changed them. It's the call of God that changes us. I, um, I started working on this series in the summer, and I was listening to a sermon uh, by Tim Keller on this passage, and he referenced a movie called Beckett that I had never heard of, and uh, so I tra- tracked it down. And the movie came out in 1964. Uh, it starred Peter O'Toole as King Henry II. So this is a, it's a true story. It's based on a true story. It goes back to the 12th century. So uh, Peter O'Toole is King Henry II, and Thomas Beckett is his, um, his friend, uh, he's played by Richard Burton, and uh, he's, he's the friend, he's the drinking buddy uh, of the king. And they go out to, you know, paint the town red, they go out to chase women, they go out, they're, they're living a, a pretty wild uh, life. Uh, the king is married, uh, Beckett is not, but they're sleeping with lots of women and drinking lots of ale. And then uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury dies. And, and the king decides that he can solve his problems, one of which is that the church is uh, you know, looking very uh, negatively at the life that he's living. He can solve his problems if he appoints his friend, his drinking buddy, to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Because then... He's got a comrade in chasing women and, and drinking, drinking beer. 
So that's what he decides he's going to do. And he does. Uh, this is at a time when both kings and popes were fighting over who got to appoint bishops. But the king, King Henry II, appoints Thomas Becket to be, who's not a priest, but he appoints him to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. But the call of God, <laughs> experienced by Becket, changes him to the horror of King Henry II. And there's a famous line, I won't give it away if you want to see the movie. It, it's, you know, it, it's not a great movie, but it's interesting. And it's based on a true story. It, I won't give too much away, but there is a famous line from history that makes its way into the movie where at one point, uh, King Henry II is so frustrated with Becket that he says, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? Right? He is, he is coming after me. Who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? The call of God changes Becket. And the call of God changes us. So, what is the call of God on your life? What is the call of God to us? What is the call of God to Abraham? If you go to Genesis chapter 12 and and look at this, two things emerge about the call that are worth noting. First of all, um, the specifics are to get out of town. (laughs) So in in Genesis chapter 11, a passage that I didn't read, I skipped over it, but it says, Genesis 11, 31, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law's son, Abraham's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. So they're setting out for Canaan, which is the promised land, Israel. They're going to the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. So they didn't make it. They set out to go from the Fertile Crescent down into Israel. That was the plan. They don't make it. Uh, They stop halfway. And so the call of God to Abraham, first of all, is to say, get out of town. Finish the job. You were supposed to go there. You didn't go there. You stopped halfway. Keep moving. Even if your father won't go with you, even if your brother won't go with you, you need to leave. You need to go. The the, um, Hebrew is pretty emphatic, and in the King James it's translated, get thee out. (laughs) So it's like, leave right now. Go to the land that I have asked you to go to. The second thing that's interesting about the call of Abraham is that it is... um, it requires a fair bit of faith. Because what God says is, go to the land I will show you. He doesn't say, go to the land you know. <laughs> he says, go to the land I will show you. And that actually, if you go ahead into Genesis 15, which we're going to go to in, in two weeks, it's, some would argue it's the most important passage in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating passage. I'm anxious to be there. But if you go there, one of the things that you see is that God is interacting with Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to do this. And and Abraham's like, this is all good. This is all good. Where is my son? You promised me a son. I don't have a son. And God's answer to Abraham is, trust me. Right? You will have a son. Trust me. So go to the land I will show you, not the land you know. Trust me on this. We get the same kind of thing later on in Genesis 22. There is a sense in which you have to step into the Jordan. (laughs) 
has a sense in which it's not always clear exactly what we're being called to. A number of decades ago, when I was 30, I was a college pastor. We were living in Washington. Uh, we had a great setup. Uh, there were hundreds of college students involved. We had a great staff team. We loved it. And I had a growing sense that God was moving us on. And for six months, I prayed, like, Lord, okay, so what's, what, what's going on here? It feels to me like you're drawing this to a close. It feels to me, but it's growing and it's big and lots of it's exciting. It feels to me like you're telling me that it's coming to a close. Uh, is that, in fact, the case? And all I got was, yes, your time here is coming to an end. And so, uh, to my father's absolute horror, uh, I told the church in January, uh, I think it was 92 or 90, yeah, 92, I said, I'm, I'm done in August. And I gave myself eight months, quite confident <laughs> that God would give me the other part of this, which is, what am I supposed to do? So my dad's, you know, I thought he was going to drive across the country and say, you don't quit a job until you got the next job. You don't quit a job until you got the next job. Right? Did you hear nothing from me? You don't quit a job until you got the next job. And I'm like, dad, I get that. I get that. But all I know is I'm done. I'm done here. And that's all I got. And so we got two young kids. We got a mortgage. And, and in August, I got no job. And, and, and we have to scale back and go into sort of, you know, crisis mode. And Sherry's got to go out and start cleaning houses. And we're, 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 and it's like, Lord, did I not, I mean, <laughs> did I not hear you? What's going on? And it, it was a while for things to come into focus. Now, hindsight, looking back, I absolutely see what God was doing. But at the time, all I got was, Here's the first step. You need to step down from your job. And sometimes that's all we get is what the next step is. So what is God calling on us to do? What is God calling you to do? Well, if you've been here for a while, you know that as a general rule, I'm the guy that's trying to get you to do the next step, whatever that is. It's often different for many of you. And I just am always saying, lean in, right? Move closer to God. Find ways to serve. Find a next step for you. Right now, if you've not been baptized, I'm the guy that's saying, let's get this done. Uh, sign up today and, and take that next step that, that often we don't get, we don't get steps three, four, and five until we do step one. We often don't get step two until we do step one. And so uh, I'm the guy saying, take the next step. And um, with REACH, um, I think our collective next step is, is to try and multiply our influence. And it's, it, it's going to require lots of people to step up and lots of people to get in the game. And, and I have people say, seriously, you guys are trying to raise $19 million? And I say, when I'm asked that, I go, yeah, you know, and that's not actually the, the biggest challenge. Uh, we're trying to get 100,000 volunteer hours. 
So the money is sort of secondary to getting people to step up and to lean in. But I'm excited about this. I am excited for the challenge that is in front of us. I'm excited about the opportunities in front of us. I'm excited about how this is going to change me, how this is going to change you, how this will change us. And so uh, we're going to be following with Abraham, who's someone who we can uh, relate to on many fronts. And uh, there's a call. And the call is what qualifies us. We're not qualified and then get called. God doesn't say, there's people that can do this. I'll use them. He says, no, I'm going to use them. And the call of God qualifies us to do the things that God is asking us to do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we want to be found faithful. We want to want to hear from you. We want to know what next steps are as individuals and as a church. We want to lean into that and trust you to that end. So we ask for your favor. We ask for your direction. Guide us, direct us, use even us, broken though we are, to do things that um, advance your work. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.